focus this morning. How many of you here are the intense social types? You love people. You want people around. You have tons of friends that energizes you. Um, you, you love having a house full of people. Where, where are my social types? No, yeah, Michael, yeah. Terry, come on. Don't, don't even slow on that one. Uh, how, how many of you on the other side of the spectrum? Your perfect night is the night in with you and your book. Um, you can do groups, but then you need to take a nap. Where's my wife? There you go. <laughs> okay. Maybe you're like me. You're somewhere along the spectrum. Actually, if I'm honest, I'm, I'm not on this. I'm, I'm on either end of the spectrum. Left to my own devices, I'll be like five days holed up reading, won't see another soul, and then I want to just binge on people, and I want to have people around in large groups for three days, and then I crash again. Um, we're different. We're all unique in the way that we relate to one another, the way that we uh, relate socially, and, and yet, as I'm looking through Philippians, asking what does it mean to live with gospel focus, we're going to see this morning the gospel transforms our relationships. That even though we're all different and unique, the gospel of Jesus Christ lays some, some baseline foundational truths for all of us that ought to define and transform how we relate to one another in the church. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Um, we're going to look at verses 3 to 8 this morning. Um, if you don't have a Bible on you, um, just go ahead and slip up your hand. One of our ushers would love to put one into that hand. Um, we want you to have God's Word. There's one up here. Uh, we want you to have God's Word in your lap open. Uh, I have nothing of value to say this morning. Um, I come with, with one hope of saying something, and, and that's God's Word. Um, so, um, yeah, I just encourage you in that. Karen, there's one more over this way. Philippians 1 is where we're going to spend our time. Last week we were looking at the introduction. Um, Paul is just kind of opening the letter. And yet even here in this short kind of two verses, um, he's working in these gospel truths. He's laying a, a foundation for, for what he's going to say in this letter. And, and in those two verses, Paul is pressing his readers to be looking for gospel authority, to be living in gospel identity and be growing in, in gospel maturity. And then following that is this prayer for the church in Philippi. And this is such a precious portion of Scripture. I mean, we, we, get to, we get to peek into the prayer closet of the Apostle Paul and to see his heart in this intimate, passionate prayer. And, and in this kind of behind-the-scenes look into Paul's heart, there are actually two portions to this prayer. It runs down to verse 11. Um, we're going to stop at just verse 8. And, and this first part that we look at today um, is his prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord for the Philippians. And in it, we see exactly what it is to have gospel relationships, how the gospel informs and, and completely transforms the way Paul relates to these people and what it ought to do for us. So let me read this first portion of the prayer, and, and then we'll kind of walk through it step by step. So starting in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. You are all partakers with me of the grace 
both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. There's a lot packed in there. You probably already have a sense of we're, we're just going to scratch the surface of, of this amazing passage. Um, but by way of introduction, it's, it's helpful to notice or to know um, these first seven verses, uh, there, there's a number of periods in there in your English translation. Um, this is one of Paul's classic run-on sentences in the Greek. That, that's one long sentence. And, and the effect actually is, is significant it's that it all comes back to that first phrase. It all comes back to Paul's gratitude. This is kind of point one, uh, kind of introduction. Um, you can do what you want with that in your notes. I'm sorry. Uh, it didn't work in my notes either. So, but relationships with gospel focus produce joyful gratitude. Paul opens up saying, I thank my God. And the word thank there is the main verb that rules over the rest of that sentence down to verse 7. All of this comes back to that one main verb. Verse 5 begins with because. He's telling us why he thanks God. Uh, verse 6 in the Greek starts with a participle. I, he thanks God being sure of this. My mom's real proud of me. I learned something in grammar. Verse 7 begins with another connecting word in the Greek, even as explaining and defending more of this idea of why he's thanking God, how he's thanking God. But this is the main point. He's thanking God for them, for this relationship that he has with them, and he's doing it filled with joy. And you can just see his, his emotion welling up here. We don't know why yet. We're going we're gonna to get into that. We'll back this up in a bit. But, but the first thing we see that we need to learn is relationships with gospel focus are joy-filled relationships. You might think, that's fine. My friends bring me joy. Uh, but notice, he's thanking God with joy for all of them at all times. His gospel focus causes him not only to be thankful for a few of them, that's our natural place, right? That's where we live. There's a couple people that I identify with. I, I go to church Sunday morning and I know who I want to go talk to and they like the things that I like and we have this great relationship. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm thanking God always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayers with joy. There's something abnormal here. There's something that's, that's different. Even the most outgoing among us, um, this is a stretch, right? All of them? There's nobody that bugs you, Paul? There's nobody that you're like, eh, I can't really thank God for you. Um, how does he get there? It tells us something significant. Um, and, and, and I think it points us back to this opening phrase that he's thanking God for them. His joy is not rooted in them. It's not rooted in something that they do or even really something that they are because his relationship with them is not dependent on them. It's dependent on God. Whatever it is that causes him this joy is something that God has done, something that, that God has produced. So this is this kind of first title slash point one, this umbrella over all of it. The whole first half of this prayer hangs on this, that, that, that relationships with gospel focus are, 
joyfully thankful. And that causes us to stop and ask, am I, am I joyful and thankful for all the people in the church? Does that kind of thankful joy define my, my relationships? What is it that makes Paul think this way? How does the, how does the gospel transform his relationships? And, and that's what he's going to unpack for us, thankfully. Um, where does this joy come from? And, and the first answer is verse 5. Because relationships with gospel focus are spiritual. Look at verse 5. Let me read it for us. It says, Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The word partnership there uh, is translated to the Greek word koinonia. It's a, it's a word that we kind of throw around. Um, usually or often it's translated fellowship. And I think that's a word that we've kind of botched as North Americans. Like that's a, that's a light, fluffy word. Let's have some fellowship time. What does that mean? Um, koinonia speaks of a close, meaningful partnership, a, a, a friendship that has a purpose. And, and their fellowship, their partnership is in the gospel. It exists because of the, of the good news of Jesus Christ. So put this in context. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were living a life of sin and, and rebellion against God. You deserved hell. But God, because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. He paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. He washed us. He cleansed us. He made us new. He adopted us into his family, united us into one people, one body. Our fellowship is a real spiritual fellowship in Christ, in the gospel. Listen to these verses, just a sampling of of dozens like them as Paul talks about what what the church is is Ephesians 2, 18 and 19, for through him, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Galatians 3, 27, for as many as you were baptized into Christ, that's the gospel, As many of you were saved, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12. For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized, submerged into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Those who are saved, those who are in Christ, have this bond together, this unique relationship that that doesn't exist anywhere else. We're part of one body together in Christ, part of the household of God. This is a spiritual fellowship. But I worry that sometimes we hear the word spiritual and and we kind of inadvertently translate that to mean less important. You know, it's not a real fellowship. It's just a a spiritual fellowship. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's the exact opposite. We have this 
spiritual fellowship, and that is to say that it's a fellowship beyond anything in this world, more powerful, something that the world can't shake or touch or change. It's deeper than that. It's more real, more significant than any earthly fellowship, any earthly connection. Church, look around you. You have a very real spiritual bond in the gospel with the people sitting here today even some that you've never met. You have something deeply in common. You're, you're joined together. A fellowship, a sweet partnership, an intimate unity that the world simply cannot understand, can't enter into outside of Christ. Not only do we share this, this intimate experience of having been brought from death to life, of repenting from sin and trusting in Christ, but but Christ has then bound us together in him as family, as one body. Do you, do you see the church that way? Do you see the gospel uh, as, as linking you together? Do you see the people sitting around you as, as united to you in that gospel? Maybe you don't have much in common with some of these people on a worldly level. You, you come from different walks of life, um, different income brackets, different backgrounds. Maybe some of them even rub you the wrong way. But far over and above that, far more significant than that is this deep spiritual bond, a partnership that we have together that, that cannot be shaken. This deep, real connection with every other believer that, that changes the way we relate to one another. So we, we are united in the gospel. That is objectively true if you're in Christ. And so then practically, we ought to relate to one another by the gospel. Right? Just last week, we had Dean and Gail and, and Shane and Roxanne over for dinner. And I didn't think of the fact that both Shane and Dean love to work on cars. And uh, so they got talking about auto repair and parts prices and troubleshooting electronics and spark plugs and and I kind of nodded and tried to keep up. Um, they had this connection. They, they knew about the same thing, and, and off they went, right? That's a fairly surface connection, but, but it, it plays out. What if you were on vacation in Thailand, and, and you're walking through this sea of foreign faces, and all of a sudden you see your brother, whom you haven't seen in years, your family, you, you, you have the same experiences, you grew up together, you have this connection, and what's going to happen? You're going to relate to one. You're going to begin talking about how have you been, and do you remember this, and you remember that, and, and you have a connection. How much more two people who were dead in their trespasses and sins have been brought to life in Christ, made one family together who, who live by the same word, who serve the same Lord. We are united in the gospel. That is true. And so we should, we should live that out. We should be united by the gospel as we relate to one another, as we talk with one another and, and walk through this life together. Let that define your relationships in the church. Talk about these things. Rejoice together in the deep, intimate things that you share that, that, that have transformed both of you. Ask people, how did, how did God save you? What is the Lord teaching you these days? What are you seeing in Scripture that's, that's precious to you this week? Rejoice in the gospel together. You have this fellowship in it. So relationships with gospel focus are, are spiritual. 
Secondly, looking at verse 6, relationships with gospel focus are hopeful. And I suspect this is a familiar verse to many of us, uh, and for good reason. What an amazing little verse. Um, Let me read it for us. Verse 6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So before we dive in, let's not forget where we started. Paul is joyfully thanking God for them. First, because their gospel in the gospel, their relationship is spiritual. And now he's thanking God for them. Um, literally, this should read, being sure that God will complete what he has started. His gospel focus makes him hopeful. And, and the word hopeful maybe is a little weak there, the way that we use it culturally. Um, you know, oh, I hope I win the lottery. Uh, that's, that's not how Scripture uses it. Um, that's not how I intended here. Biblically, hope and certainty go together, right? Think of Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So what I mean by hopeful is, is not at all an uncertainty, but, but a joyful expectation that there's something good to come. We don't have it yet, but it's on its way. And that's what this passage is about. There's a, there's a confidence here, a certainty of something good to come. What is he hopeful about? The completion of their salvation at the day of Jesus Christ. So one, one piece at a time, what is this day of Jesus Christ? What's he talking about? Well, he's making an Old Testament reference. Uh, the day of the Lord is, is all through the Old Testament and all through the, the prophets. And the day of the Lord is a terrifying thing. The day of the Lord is the day of the Lord's judgment. His wrath poured out against a sinful world. Isaiah 13, 6 says this, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, and destruction from the Almighty will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. But of course, as we see those picture of the day of the Lord play out into Revelation, the day of the Lord Uh, the day of the Lord's judgment against sin also becomes the day of our final vindication, our final rescue for those who are in him, those who've been redeemed out from sin. And Paul says he is sure, he's confident, he's persuaded and convinced that the day of the Lord, the day of God's wrath against all sin and rebellion of this world will be a great day for them, will be a joyful day for them. The day of the Lord will be a day of celebration for those who are in Christ. And he doesn't doubt the final product of their salvation. How can he say that? How can he be so sure? Some of us sitting here are not that sure about our own salvation. How do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I have not or will not someday in the future completely train wreck my faith? Turn away from the Lord and not ultimately be saved. How do I know that this last descent into binging on sin and satisfying my flesh was not the end of God's patience to warn me that I haven't spurned him for the last time? And the answer might surprise you. His confidence is not in them. Not to beat a dead horse. I kind of ranted on this last week. How this 
this whole world of, of self-help and look inside yourself and you're strong enough and you're able and, and, and follow your heart it has worked its way into the, the North American church. And that's the exact opposite of the gospel. It is an anti-gospel. Right here would have been a great opportunity for, for Paul to say, I'm, I'm confident of this. That on the day of the Lord, you will be rejoicing because you are strong because you're enough, because you are an overcomer, right? But he doesn't do that. He says, I'm confident in your final salvation, in your eternal destiny, because what? He. Because he who began a good work will finish it. Your salvation doesn't rest on your own strength, your own faithfulness. The strength and faithfulness of the Lord is what gives him this confidence. See, as, as humans, we live in a world of taking risks. We start things that we're not able to finish. Uh, we begin projects that we then have to admit we, we don't know how to complete, we're not able to complete. Maybe we just don't want to complete anymore. Not God. He is all-knowing and all-wise and all-powerful, and that combination locks it down. He knew every cost, every hurdle, every battle that would be involved in your salvation before he started. And he is able and willing to overcome them where he would not have started. It's impossible for God to fail. It is impossible for God to, to take a risk. We see salvation from a human perspective. That's the world we live in. And, and so we often ask or hear the question, can a Christian lose their salvation? Can a Christian lose Christ? And it's a fair question. It's a question we need to ask. But there's another question that runs parallel to that, and it's the question that the Bible actually addresses far more frequently, and it is this, can Christ lose a Christian? That's a different question. Same result, but from a different angle. He purchased you with his own blood. He made you his own. Can Christ lose a Christian? We love to quote Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. But you know what the foundation is under that? You know how he can say that? And when we say, what, what does that mean? Does that mean, like Josh said, if I give $100, I'm going to get a $100 back? Now the people listening to the recording are like, wow, their worship leader just promised that? Uh, <laughs> no. No, what is this good that he's talking about? Is it, is it financial blessing? Is it earthly ease? How does he know? How do, how do we know this to be true? What does he really mean that, that God will work all things for our good what good? Well, he goes on to tell us. He explains it in verses 29 and 30. He says, For because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Listen to this. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's a one-to-one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one -to -one connection. Those whom God predestined and called and justified and glorified. And glorified, if there's any confusion there, means brought safely into heaven. 
start to finish. None are lost, not one. He started this process and he will finish it. This is the passage that then begs the question and, 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 and presses Paul to say, what then can separate us from the love of Christ? What can cut us off from this salvation in Christ? And the answer is absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. John 6, 39, Jesus says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise them up in the last day. 1 Thessalonians 5 says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and body, spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will do it. He will complete it. Your salvation does not finally depend on you and your strength and your ability. It depends on God's ability and his faithfulness. That's all Paul says. I'm certain of this. I have this hope about you. But I want us to understand one more layer here, um, because I think this idea can be easily abused and easily taken, taken wrong. The question is, what does that look like? We often hear the phrase, uh, once saved, always saved. And, and in principle, I absolutely agree, but, but we need to define what that means. Because it's often used to say, I know Jim, and he is continuing in his sin. He says that he hates God, and his life backs that up every day after day after day. But Jim prayed a prayer once, and once saved, always saved. What do you do with that? Is that what we're talking about? Is that what we mean by this? We speak of salvation like an inoculation. And I'm stealing this from John Piper. I think it's just a great analogy. When's the last time you thought of the fact that you were vaccinated against diphtheria? Right? Happened. I think, Mom, was I vaccinated against diphtheria? Yes. So I'm good. So I can, I can walk the streets. I, I can share toothbrushes with people with diphtheria. I don't have to worry. I got that covered. It's done. It's, it's finished. I don't need to think about it anymore. Right? Salvation is not like a vaccination. Look at Paul's language here. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. The ESV, unfortunately, has at the day of Jesus Christ. They, they, they missed it there. The word is our key. It means until the day. It speaks of an ongoing as the rest of the verse does. All of this language speaks not of, a, not of a one and done, he prayed a prayer one time, but an ongoing work, something that God began and is working out. Now, now, now that doesn't mean that you, that you weren't absolutely saved and justified at that first moment, but it means that that salvation has an impact. It's, it's a bigger process than just a one moment left behind. That means salvation is not something that happened to you only. It's not just the, the forgiveness of your sin. It's something that happens in you, as Paul says here. Something that will be a, in process of completion in you until the day of Jesus Christ. It's not like a vaccination. It's more like dialysis, right? 
Every day I wake up and by God's faithfulness, I'm sustained again. I'm renewed in my spiritual life, walking in ongoing faith and repentance and trust in Him. When I fall into sin and rebellion, God faithfully, lovingly disciplines me, brings me back, restores me again to repentance. Not that I'm saved again, but He's continuing the work that He began. Rather than saying, once saved, always saved, at the the risk of that misunderstanding, I, I prefer the language of the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints. That God will preserve them. That by His grace working in them, they will persevere through to the end. Now that causes us some discomfort. That maybe tweaks the way we have to think about salvation a little bit. And as we look at people who maybe at one time in their life profess to trust in Christ, but whose life today shows no evidence of ongoing work of Christ, we have some hard questions to ask. That's not an easy place to be. It would be nice to be able to say they they said a prayer so it's done. But if salvation is more than that, if salvation includes a working in you of, of not only calling, but also sanctification and glorification, then we have to say, We don't know the heart. We we don't know what God is doing behind the scenes, under the surface. Hear me, true children of God will sometimes walk in rebellion against him for years before he finally calls them back or sometimes just calls them home. And yet we know there will be some who like Judas, who walked with Jesus for three years. None of the other disciples questioned his sincerity. We we read this at the dinner table with our family this week as we're going through Mark. Jesus says, one of you sitting here will betray me. And not one of them said, Judas, it's Judas. He's a faker. No, what did they say? Not me, Lord. Surely not. They questioned themselves before Judas. And yet in the end, Judas betrayed Jesus. And he's called the son of destruction, literally the son of damnation. Jesus, in the parable of the sower, talks about seeds that would be sown out and some would sprout up quickly. They would give give exterior evidence that looks like salvation, but then dry up and be uprooted and die. And, And he says only those that bear fruit into the harvest are truly saved. John says in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they'd been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Salvation is this ongoing work that God completes in us. And so as as people who once professed Christ deliberately walk off into sin and forsake repentance, we're right to gently, lovingly say, brother, sister, repent. Come back to faith in Christ. Come back to following Him. Keep on trusting Christ as, as evidence of His ongoing work. You, you, you can have no confidence in your salvation as you're walking in deliberate, unrepentant sin. But on the other hand, as believers who sin, who stumble, who fall, who find ourselves back in the ditch that we thought we crawled out of, 
we return to faith in Christ, if we continue in repentance, we can have confidence. My salvation doesn't depend on my own effort. My salvation doesn't depend on my faithfulness to Him, but His faithfulness to me. This passage comes from that side of the coin. Paul is looking at those who are are walking with Christ, certainly not perfectly. He's about to correct some for quarreling and disputing in the church. And yet he's saying, in spite of all of that, I'm confident in his faithfulness. I'm confident that he will continue to work out this salvation that he has begun in you. We ought to have this hope in one another. Um, Show of hands, how many can say this morning, God's work in me is done. I made it. I'm sanctified. It's finished. Careful. If you put up your hand, then it's pride. You've got to start over again. It just gets messy. No, none of us. None of us. I hope all of us can say with confidence, I'm, I'm more holy today, more sanctified today than I was a year ago. I can see that. But done? No. Now, in fact, the further I get down that road, the more I see in my heart that I know the Lord has to deal with yet. That work is far from finished. And that perspective affects our relationships, doesn't it? And they they call it rough edges for a reason. It hurts when you bump into the rough edge of a stone or you run your hand along the rough edge of a piece of timber. It's not a comfortable thing. And it hurts as we bump into the rough edges of one another in the church. But relationships with this gospel focus ought to have eyes to see beyond the rough edges, right? Overlook small offenses, forgive even the greatest offenses. Because we're joined together in the gospel. And in the gospel, we know it's, my sin doesn't define me. And he who began this good work is in the, in the process of bringing it to completion. And so, yes, that brother hurt me. He has sin in him just like I have in me. But Christ is working in us. And we need to be knit together as the church and forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us. We can expect and embrace God's ongoing work in one another. More than that, we can even expect to take part in that work. We're called to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, to speak the truth and love to one another. That's hard. but That's that continuing work in us and through us as we're built up and matured. That's relationship with gospel focus. That's part of why we do small groups, that we're just consistently doing this, spurring one another on and helping each other grow. That's why we're launching this one-to-one Bible reading, because we expect God to be at work. We're united in the gospel, confident in God's continuing work in his church. And, And remember, this is Paul's joy. This is why he's thanking God and rejoicing, because these relationships with gospel focus are spiritual and are hopeful. And then finally, relationships with gospel focus are missional. Look at verses 7 and 8 here. He says, It's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. 
For you are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. So he's arguing that his feeling, this expression of joyful thanksgiving to God uh, is not only good, it's right, it's proper. And here he gets downright passionate. I hold you in my heart. I, I yearn for you. I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Who talks this way? Like this, is, this doesn't sound like a letter to a church anymore. This sounds like a private, personal letter between two people. This is getting intimate. And you'll notice the structure here. Um, if you're paying attention, it's, it's a bit like a sandwich. He says, I hold you in my heart because you're partakers together with me. I yearn for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. So he has this, this parallel top and bottom with the, the oddball statement in the middle. Um, if you want to get nerdy, this is called a chiasm. It's all through Hebrew writing. You start looking for it, um, you'll see it all over the place. And, and often with, with many more levels of A, B, C, D, C, B, A. Right. So you have parallel, 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 and then you get the meat in the middle. And that's the point, is, is pointing to that item in the middle that stands out. That's what he's drawing attention to. And, and so the point here, the reason that he loves them, that he's longing for them, is that they're partakers together with him of grace. You know that word partakers is in the Greek? It's koinonia, again. You're partners with me here. You think, wait a second, didn't he just say this in verse 5? That they're partakers with him? Well, we may actually have a chiasm as part of a chiasm here if you really want to go down the rabbit hole. Um, but yeah, in verse 5, he says that, that you're partakers together, that they have this spiritual fellowship through the gospel itself and its effect on them. But then verse 7 has a bit of a different emphasis, and it's the fellowship in God's grace working out in these practical ways. Fellowship in his imprisonment. Fellowship in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. His imprisonment is because of the gospel. That, that's why he's there. He's awaiting trial. And the word defense and confirmation um, are, are legal terms. They speak of this legal defense. And so again, a reference at least partly to his, to his trial. But how are the Philippians partakers with him in these things? They, they didn't go to trial. They didn't stand as witnesses on his behalf in Rome. Um, how does he say this? Well, one way that they were partners with him was through giving. And Paul uses the same language down Further in, in Philippians chapter 4, he says, You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership, koinonia, with me in giving and receiving except you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. The Philippians financially supported the ministry of Paul. And particularly here and now, he, he's at the end of his ministry, the end of his life, he's He's in prison, um, but, but he has this ability uh, under the watch of the Roman guard um, to be under house arrest, to live in a, a house and eat his own food and have some measure of freedom in his own house, but it's to his own expense. How does he do that? Philippians are helping him, as other churches 
The Philippians sent Epaphroditus with a gift for Paul of, of financial support. And so their giving, Paul says, was them joining in partnership with him in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And I love this. Paul goes on to say in verse 18 that their gift to him was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. It was worship. It honored the Lord. That's exactly what we do Sunday after Sunday right here. That's why we have time for an offering. To give to God a fragrant offering pleasing to Him as we partner together in ministry. That offering pays my salary so that I can spend my week studying God's Word and bring a sermon so that I can meet with people and encourage them in the Lord so that I can help organize and lead small groups and, and, and the, the ministry of the church. It pays for this sound equipment and the rental of this building so that we can gather together and worship our God together so that we have the ability to say to somebody, hey, come and see, come and be a part of what God is doing. Hopefully someday it'll pay for Josh's salary so we can free him up to do more and be more involved. But it's partnership together in the gospel. To see lost people saved, saved people matured, mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. That's what it's about. And so I, I want to encourage you, be a part of that. Giving joyfully and, and sacrificially as an offering to God and partnering together in the ministry. But I don't think that's the only way that they partnered with Paul. I think they also partnered with him very personally and practically. They made their own defense and confirmation of the gospel, no doubt. The church in Philippi continued to grow and spread long after Paul had left. They were also being pressed and persecuted, maybe not to this degree, but as they shared the gospel, as they proclaimed it in Philippi, um, they also were proclaiming and, and confirming the gospel. But here's the bottom line. Their relationship made sense. It had meaning and purpose. It was filled with joy because they had a mission together. They were, they were going the same way. They were working the same shared goal and, and vision, and they're working together to see the Great Commission accomplished. That's what it's about. A, a gospel focus transformed their relationship. And church, we have the same mission today. I, I say it often. That's our mission statement. It, it's, it's really just the Great Commission reworded. That's all it is. It's the same mission the church has always had. That's why we're here in Olds. Lost people saved, saved people mature, mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. Our mission is the gospel, and our relationships are to have that gospel focus, to be linking arms together for a reason, right? That's why I can hate the term fellowship. It means we don't have a purpose to be here. We're just going to fellowship. That's not what fellowship means. Fellowship means we are on a mission together. You're just coming to church to be served. Think this is a place to come as a consumer. You just want to come in and enjoy nice music and hear a heartwarming message and then get back to real life, whatever that is. Um, you're missing the point. You're missing out on what you were saved to be about and, and, and what relationships were meant to be. I can't tell how many people have come to our church here for a season and not plugged in, not joined in serving, 
not joined small groups, not gotten excited about the mission of the church, not partnered in the work of the ministry, and then they leave and they say, you know, we just never felt like we were part of the group. We never, we just always felt like we were on the outside. Well, you were. What happens when a guy gets hired to a construction crew and then stands back and leans on his shovel and kind of watches the others work? What happens if a, if a football player decides, and he's just going to stay at the line of scrimmage? It's, it's dangerous up there. I don't want to go into that whole scrum with the big guys. I'm going to just stay back here. The soldier who stays back at the base, never goes out on patrol, never finds himself in the trenches alongside the other soldiers. You never become part of the crew, part of the team, part of the, the battalion. That's where true friendships are forged. That's where relationships have meaning and, and purpose as we work together. Now, we all go through seasons where, where we need the work of the church to be helping us. We need to be fed. We need to be pulled up. That, that's, that's just the ebb and flow of life. We get that. But our heart ought to be um, to get built up again, to, to be able to link arms and, and serve together and grow together. There's deep fellowship in the trenches. Your relationships are built to be for, for gospel focus. Uh, is, is that what defines your relationship with the church? Can you say, I'm, I'm here for a reason. We ought to be able to rejoice and celebrate with thanksgiving to God for the church. These people gather right here often because of the gospel. Because in Christ, we have this relationship that is, that is spiritual, that is so much deeper than anything this world has to offer. Because in Christ, this relationship is hopeful. We know God is working out this process of salvation. We see his work in our lives as we grow together. And we know there's more to come, and it's missional. We've got a purpose. We've got a, a goal, church. We want to see the gospel of Jesus Christ reach every corner of olds and of this world. And we can't do that alone. We need, to, we need to do that with arms linked together. So we ought always to thank God for all the saints making our prayers with joy as we live together in the fellowship of the gospel. So I just want to encourage us, church, let's, let's live that out. Begin to see your relationships a little more, a little differently. Begin to maybe talk about spiritual things. If you haven't done that before, it's a blast. That's my favorite part. I get to just sit down with people and say, how did God save you? And hear their story and hear testimony of God's grace again and again and again. Maybe you're hearing this and thinking, yeah, I just don't know how. What's my role? I'm not gifted. I, I, don't, I don't know what to, where to plug in. It's one-to-one -one Bible reading. This is, this is gospel Focus relationships 101. How do you sit down and just read the Bible with another believer and encourage each other? That's it. Um, that's real simple. Um, I would encourage you. Let's, let's be a part of that. Um, join a small group. That's what we do. We, we sit down and, and work our way through God's word and then say, what does this mean in your life? Oh, yeah. And by the way, you mentioned you're struggling with this sin. How's that going for you? How can we encourage you in that? Give. Make a sacrificial gift to the, to the church saying, I want to partner in this ministry together. I want to help with what God is doing here. Link arms together. That's, that's what we're about. And, and ultimately, membership is that just kind of formal statement. This is my church. This is where I belong. These are the people that I am going to plug in with and serve with and grow with. 
We have a mission together, church. Let me pray.